This is episode 21, Governing Spartans. Hi all. So a quick note before I start today. We had to move house rather suddenly this month, and as anyone who has had to move before would know, which I'm assuming is pretty much everyone listening, moving sucks. It made for a slightly rushed affair as far as the script goes. I didn't get to include everything I would have liked to relating to the topic, but I have ample opportunity to include parts missed as and when I see fit in the future. So this won't be the final word ever on Spartan government. Also, to make things even more fun, I decided to migrate over to using Audacity rather than GarageBand. My PC is set up for gaming, something I don't get a lot of time to do these days and has incredibly noisy fans. Audacity users have assured me I can perform some pretty cool noise reduction. Hopefully all goes well, and as this episode hits your ears, it isn't too painful to listen to. Any feedback is as always appreciated. If it's a total disaster sound-wise, then I'll move back to the old Mac and GarageBand for everyone's sanity. With that out of the way, let's dance. Last time I took the Spartan narrative up to the middle period of the 7th century BCE. The picture we have at that point is one of a Sparta that has dramatically increased its land holdings through aggressive expansion. Moreover, those new conquests were sorely tested by a general uprising of the previously defeated and enslaved Messinians. As she would many times over the coming centuries, Sparta emerged victorious from the conflict. Insurrection wasn't the only ill afflicting the state at that time. Despite land settlements and new tracts for distribution, there was still a strong undercurrent of dissent within the citizen body, an atmosphere of disenfranchisement. Add to that a military revolution sweeping across the land in the form of the hoplite warrior, a movement the Laconians weren't at the forefront of, and you have a recipe for disaster. To avoid catastrophe, a lovely Greek word meaning to overturn, the Spartans over the course of the 7th century enacted a series of stringent and sweeping reforms designed to ameliorate the various harms besetting their world. This episode marks the beginning in a series designed to flesh out that world in its entirety, to really put some meat on the bone of the Spartan image towards the end of the Archaic Age. This time around, we'll be looking directly at the organs of government and the peoples those structures sought to control through law. I use the word control by design, for if the city was to avoid rebellion or societal rift, if her armies were to be triumphant on the field, a vice-like adherence to a new code was imperative. And with a state so heavily stratified, it was important for the different strata to know their place within the society. I've touched on the numerous Greek cities moving their governmental structures away from monarchy and towards various forms of aristocratic or tyrannical systems of rule. The Spartans took a different path entirely. They diluted their monarchy first by dividing it and then binding it to a council of elders. This body too eventually relinquished the ultimate power of ratification to a citizen assembly. In a society renowned for its so-called equality, it was the only way of the ancient ruling elite maintaining a seat at the table of governance, for if every citizen was equal, they all required an equal say. It is the different organs of the Spartan constitution that underpinned all local and foreign policy, and understanding their machinations is essential to the Lacedaemonian story. When considering Sparta, it's very simple almost natural to imagine her armies to the exclusion of all else. Red-cloaked warriors marching across the rugged landscape, crushing those that through temerity or lunacy stood before them. For the Spartans, though, acts of heroism were of no consequence. Only obedience and deference to the law and their elders was held in high esteem. There is a story from the opening phase of the Battle of Plataea in 479 BCE about a Spartan who, wishing to redeem his honour, charged the Persian line alone and was cut to shreds. 
Rather than heroic honours being awarded, he was posthumously reprimanded back home for disobeying command and breaking the line. His name was Aristodemus, and he was the only survivor of the Spartan defeat at Thermopylae the year before. His act of suicide, designed to ameliorate his former dishonour, only highlighted the esteem Spartans placed on obedience. Additionally, after that defeat at the Hot Gates, the Spartans contracted the famous lyric poet Simonides to erect an epitaph on the site. There was no mention of the glory won by Leonidas and his men, no sweet hymn to the mighty deeds performed in front of an innumerable host of Persians. No, simply the words, Go tell the Spartans, stranger passing by, that here we lie, obedient to their laws. At the centre of any reasonable discussion about early Spartan governmental practices lies what is known as the Great Retra. Now, we've touched on this retra, or pronouncement, before during the episode on Lycurgus, but we'll drill right into it now as it is the most important archaic literary fragment to remain regarding the Spartans. Historically, our first look at it in full comes from Plutarch in his biographies, and he in turn most likely received it from an Aristotelian commentary on the Spartan constitution. Although the great polymath was a prominent in the latter part of the 4th century, and after Sparta's decline, there's good evidence suggesting that his recording of the Retra as an early piece of liturgical work is in fact genuine. To support it as such, we have a section of Tertius's corpus that seems to speak to the Retra's prominence in the poet's own time, which as we know, was the first half of the 7th century BCE and contemporary with the Second Mycenaean War. I'll recite both Plutarch's recording and then Tertius's fragment so we can at least place some provenance on the great biographer's inclusion of the Retra in his life of Lycurgus. Afterwards, we'll work through each line to glean their significance to early governmental structure within Lacedaemonia. First, Plutarch writes, Having established a cult of Selenian Zeus and Athena, having done the tribing and the obing, and having established a garousia of thirty members including the kings, season in and season out, they are to hold a pele between Babika and Nakion. The garousia is both to introduce proposals and to stand aloof. The Damos is to have the power to give decisive verdict. But if the Damos speaks crookedly, the Garusia and the kings are to be the removers. And now for the excerpt from Tertius. Having listened to Phoebus, they brought home from Pitho the oracles of the god and his words which were to be fulfilled. To rule in council is for the kings, who are esteemed by the gods and whose care is the lovely city of Sparta. And for the aged elders, but then, it is for the common people to respond in turn with straight retras. Even a cursory glance will yield similarities in meaning between the two texts. Even more important is something that each of them failed to mention, the Ephorit. The Ephors were a pivotal arm of Spartan government who held great power within their five-man, annually elected board. More on them later, for now it is only necessary to note their exclusion from the above. The formation of that body, as we'll see, was indeed a later event. Let's break the individual lines down. The first two are extremely contentious and an incredible amount of time has been poured into discerning their cryptic meaning. Fortunately for me, they are of little import to our endeavours, so we won't dwell on them too much. Having established a cult of Selenian Zeus and Athena, having done the tribing and the obing. It's supposed they refer to the beginning of the city itself, the foundation of its structures and centres of worship. The establishment of cults is likely the holy centres being first consecrated to the gods, 
though Zeus's presence is a relative anomaly as he was of secondary importance within Sparta compared with Athena, Apollo and Artemis. The tribing and the obing merely refers to the segmentation of the citizenry into what amounts to basically clans or brotherhoods. The next two lines set the scene for what would have been perhaps post-Sol kingship, the earliest political council within Sparta. And having established a gerousia of 30 members, including the kings, season in and season out, they are to hold the appelle between Babika and Nakion. The gerousia was, so to speak, the council of elders. To qualify for membership to this august body, the nominee was required to be at least 60 years of age and of homoio status. Elevation to the council was via votes of acclaim by the citizen body. However, Plutarch mentions that men in an enclosed room judged which applicant received the loudest votes and decided who had won the acclaim of the people. My thoughts are that the judges were part of an aristocratic class who in reality made up their own minds about who would sit on the Gerousia, and were members themselves in many instances. Homoioi, as we've seen before, means similar, and not equals as is popularly portrayed. There were definitely the haves and the have-nots within the city, a division that only gaped wider as time went on. In fact, from the earliest times of the city, there was always a privileged group of families. People through, however spurious a means, could trace their family lines back to the sons of Heracles, and not simply just to the Dorian tribes that migrated with their return to the Peloponnese. It is likely, in my mind at least, that these families dominated the Council of Elders. Much in the same way the patrician families of the early Roman Republic could trace their lineage back to the band of criminals who collected themselves around Romulus and Remus, they too dominated the political scene at that time due to their apparently superior descent. According to the Retra, season in and season out, that is, month to month, this council was to hold the appelle. It's an interesting word, and one unique to Sparta, referring to not just the voting citizenry as a whole, which was commonly called the Damos in Greece, but also the area that body would gather for the purpose of lawmaking. It is supposed that a pale comes from the name of Apollo and signifies the people gathering with the deity's providence. The congregation took place between the Babika and the Nakion. Aristotle tells us that these places were a bridge and a river, respectively. Personally, I just can't see the Spartans assembling on a bridge for the purposes of lawmaking, nor performing such in the Erotus. It's enough to suppose the names to find an area of common assembly, as the Nix Hill served the Athenians. The next three lines round out the function of this God-ordained style of governance. The Gerousia is both to introduce proposals and to stand aloof. The Damos is to have the power to give a decisive verdict. But if the Damos speaks crookedly, the Gerousia and kings are to be the removers. In other words, the style was to be proboletic, whereby a small, popularly mandated and deliberative assembly would digest matters of state. Despite being elitist in nature, it makes sense that a relatively tiny body had a chance to trim and structure any law before seeking formal promulgation by the Damos. The alternative would be the wild swings of fancy enacted by the fickle citizens of Athena, where the mob was ruled by the demagogue. How the Gerousia worked internally to come up with its bills of law isn't properly explained in the sources, but due to its integrity being polluted as such by the addition of royalty, I suspect it depended upon how powerful the kings were, what their agenda was, and were they in accord or not. If in the case of the latter, it's easy to imagine the Gerousia in a state of polarisation and judging specifically by foreign policy, as we progress through the timeline, we'll see evidence of the occasional rift in the council. Regardless, the rulings were put forward for ratification by the Damos, another word for the voting citizenry, 
who had the duty of decision. The last line states that the final say before effect was the Garusias, in the event that the Damos spoke crookedly. Presumably, the citizen assembly was not merely a rubber stamp serving the will of the aristocrats. They could, and would modify bills put before them, and although the council had right to block any amendments put forward, the Damos remained sovereign. In no part of the Retra does it state they were required to deliberate a bill put before them. It appears they had the ultimate right of rejection too. The big question for me is, was the final edict of the Retra to set aside a crooked judgment of the Damos ever invoked? If such an event occurred, it is in no way recorded in the remaining sources and was perhaps a dead letter from its inception. Sparta was a society built upon strict adherence to the laws and a healthy respect for one's elders. Would a citizen body, all trained from the age of seven in the art of war and obedience, truly be able to ignore or disregard a direct request from a council of the most distinguished members of that society? Impossible to answer for sure, but I think not. So, to summarise the retro's function briefly, the kings, in council with the Garusia, would attend to matters of state and design laws for deliberation and modification by the Damos. The citizens could either outrightly reject what was put before them, or return the bill back to the Garusia with or without modification. The aristocrats from there had the option of either ratifying and enacting the approved legislation, or rejecting it in turn. This method of promulgation seems to have been a consistent feature throughout the history of Sparta long after she became a second-rate power, due, I think, to its divine provenance. As Tertius says, having listened to Phoebus, they brought home from Pitho the oracle of the god and his words which were to be fulfilled. Although not mentioning Lycurgus, the poet's words nonetheless imply that Apollo, through his mouthpiece the Pythia, delivered this pronouncement directly from Delphi to Sparta. This is keeping with Plutarch's and Aristotle's belief in the Spartan constitution's foundation resting on a Delphic oracle. And in this belief, there is no reason to doubt Plutarch. Serving as a priest at Delphi for many years, it is safe to assume he knew an oracle when he heard one. One last note on the retro before we move on. The system of governance it lays out shoots down the popular view that Sparta practiced a form of oligarchy within the bounds of the city. Whilst it is true that she certainly preferred that style in the various cities she allied with or sought to control over the centuries, it wasn't the case back home. If anything, with final power resting in the hands of the Demos, Sparta was in some ways democratic in its leanings. Now I don't mean to insinuate any similarity with the city's arch-rival Athens at all. Peculiarly Spartan, the political sphere was one with an element of monarchy via the kings, one of oligarchy with the Gerousia, and democratic with the Demos. An amalgamation of all three types designed to level the playing field as much as possible and provide checks and balances against any one facet gaining preponderance. Being the earliest power structure, the kingship had by the time of the Retra already undergone some watering down of its plentitudinous power. The original Argiad House remained the senior of the two, however, the addition of the Europontid House created an automatic dichotomy in policy. Still, at this early time, either king's word was practically and legally law, with something akin to the right of veto being available between them. As time went on, the fortunes of the city swayed to and fro as successive kingly partnerships worked together or in opposition. Eventually, a council was created to break the intermittent moments of stasis, where it was the result of political revolution. Regardless, from the Garusia's inception, monarchic power was effectively hamstrung. Couple that with a later addition of a citizen assembly, and the kingship was looking a little titular in nature. All that being said, for the right king, 
with the right policies and luck, they could rise above all other organs of government and effectively dominate national and foreign policy. Despite their relegation to a member of the pre-deliberative council, they nonetheless had certain assumed and implied powers. First and foremost was the command of Spartiate armies. In a culture of warriors, it was a singular honour. Aristotle referred to them as merely hereditary generals in his works and bemoaned the rhetoric curtailing their rights. I see it a little differently. It's a proven fact that success on the field of battle translates directly to political influence, especially in the ancient world. Gaius Julius Caesar was a great statesman, lawman, and general before his Gallic campaigns, but it was his success in Gaul that really put him on the Roman Senate's threat radar. The same kind of authority could be commanded by Spartan kings were they to be victorious on the field, and it wasn't as though they lacked the opportunity. Pre-Peloponnesian War, the Greek world was a decidedly smaller place with smaller goals. It wasn't an era of protracted campaigns extending from season to season, with city-states sending multiple armies into the field. For Sparta, with an enslaved population within their home range, the relative strength of arms within the borders of Laconia was something to be constantly considered, lest the helots rise up. Leaving too weak a force back home to quell unrest was a clear and present danger. Therefore, they sent their armies away from the Peloponnese very sparingly indeed. In most cases, pre-late 5th century, those armies were led by one of the kings, or in the case of Plataea, a regent. The other king was generally left in Sparta to deal with any threat of internal violence. A law passed in Sparta during 507 BCE forbade more than one king being away on campaign at the same time to ensure continuity of rule should one fall. The context for this law perhaps has more nefarious reasons, as it came into effect during the joint reigns of Cleomenes I and Demaratus. To say these men didn't exactly see eye to eye would be a gross understatement. Demaratus did his very best to undermine the powerful Cleomenes and his aggressive foreign policies, so much so that Cleomenes bribed the Delphic oracle to have his opponent removed from the kingship. Demaratus promptly medized and went over to the Persians, and Cleomenes was eventually exiled for his perfidy and committed suicide in an interesting fashion. But we'll look more at those events in later episodes. On campaign, the kings, as generals, had supreme command over their troops' lives and activities. That's not to say that there weren't ramifications should a king act not in accordance with Spartan law and interests. For example, in 418 BCE, King Agius was responsible for what was a very unpopular truce with the city of Argos. Thucydides mentions that his men followed their king home due to the law, but by those same laws, Argus was prosecuted by those same men in the assembly of Sparta upon their return from campaign. The kings also could exercise a form of royal prerogative, whereby they could directly appeal to the citizen assembly, going above and beyond the bounds of the Gerousia. Whether or not this was an enshrined or assumed right is hard to understand. My thoughts, though, lean towards the latter. In that a truly powerful king like Cleomenes, for example, could practically do as he sees fit. With his military success giving him the power to overrule the Council of Elders and put forward his own bills for the people's consent. Furthermore, such a king could single-handedly dictate foreign policy as happened in 499 BCE. Aristagoras, the tyrant of Miletus, travelled to Sparta in that year to persuade the city to help aid his own in what we now call the Ionian Revolt, the precursor to the Greco-Persian Wars. Herodotus tells us that it was Cleomenes and he alone who dealt with Aristagoras, denying his request for aid after finding out exactly how far away Persia really was from Sparta. This autocratic behaviour by Cleomenes was an exception to the general rule 
and merely an example of how a kingship, however curtailed by institution, could still carry supreme rule over the Lacedaemonians. In Herodotus's account of Cleomenes' 30-year reign, which is our best source, there is a reason why we hear nothing of the Gerousia and only two mentions of the Ephorate. They were all the king's men, and whether willing or not, simply could not muster the authority to go against so powerful and popular a ruler. On that point we get to the root of kingly power within Sparta, so we'll explore that briefly before moving on to the Gerousia. Unlike the annually elected ephors, the pre-deliberative council, which individually were amongst 27 other elders with their own agendas, and the citizen assembly, where personal control of the masses was nigh impossible, the kings had the opportunity at a long build-up of their power base. The constitutional machinations of Sparta did not, despite reform's best efforts, eliminate the role of personal leadership by the kings. In turn, the degree of authority garnered by that personal leadership was, and remained, a considerable factor in dictating state policy. The trick was, however, that after the reforms of the Retra, the right of kingly power could no longer be assumed, it had to be earned on the field of battle. I believe that this factor, above even perhaps the need for a permanent war footing due to the helot threat, was the driving reason for Sparta as the military state par excellence in Greece. The continued need for military preparedness gave the king's opportunity a plenty to prove themselves, and although it eventually spilled over as imperial aggression post-Peloponnesian war, in the centuries before, it allowed Sparta to be master of her domain. The formation of the Gerousia is front and centre of the Great Retra. Clearly, this prophetic utterance was an answer to a growing problem within Sparta at the time. That was, the rich and powerful families wanting a share in government. The proboletic nature of the council was spelt out too, but from there, these elite representatives play a rather silent role within the city's politics. This soft, almost silent power is more than likely the ideal way such a body should operate, but it certainly makes researching their function frustrating to say the least. Thucydides, in the entirety of his work on the Peloponnesian War, an event filled with the call-up of armies, creation of treaties, and other foreign policies, mentions them not even once. Herodotus, in the histories, deals with them once only, and Xenophon, an Athenian who lived in Sparta, has them in a functional role just once as well. So it is, with only two accounts by authors contemporary of Spartan greatness that we get to see the Gerousia in action. Firstly, Herodotus records that in around 540 BCE they consulted the board of Ephes about the failure of King Anaxandridas' marriage to produce an heir. At the elder's suggestion, the king was asked to divorce his current wife and marry another, lest the issue be taken before the people. There's a veiled threat there possibly insinuating the Gerousia putting up for vote the deposition of King Anaxandridas for the assembly's ratification. The king refused to do their bidding, stating he could find no fault with his wife warranting divorce. Momentarily stopped, the Gerousia and Ephorate issued the king with a final ultimatum. You may stay married to your current wife, but must take another as well. Along with that came a naked threat of removal from office. This time, the king agreed. You'll notice that nobody went through the proper constitutional channels in the entire exchange. Everything was entirely implicit in its meaning, without the need ultimately to involve the citizenry at large, or for that matter, any organ of government. A powerful Gerousia, one not beholden to either king, had the ability to affect their hereditary rulers on even the most personal of levels. Xenophon's account takes place in the year 398, during an event known as the Kinathon Conspiracy. 
By that time, the homoioi population had dwindled and were merely a splash of red amongst overwhelming numbers of underclass castes. Kinothon attempted a coup by organising others like him, full-blooded Spartans who had subsequently lost their citizen rights due to being unable to financially support their qualification. The Ephas were alerted by an informer, and they called a session of the Gerusia. The decision was made in council to torture Kinothon to learn his co-conspirators, and they were all collectively dragged through the streets of Sparta until dead. It's a great example of the Gerusia's other main function besides forwarding laws to the assembly. They were the Supreme Court of Sparta, the only body capable of trying any citizen, up to and including the king, and sentencing them however they saw fit, be it fine, exile, or death. The stability in Sparta was helped greatly by the Gerusia's retention of the right to capital punishment and banishment. Those powers are handed to the assembly at the pre-deliberative council's peril, as happened in Athens with the vulnerable council of the Areopagus when it lost the power of ostracism to the masses. The Kinothon example is one of an extreme nature, whereby the citizen assembly was bypassed entirely in what was an unconstitutional but necessary act. In general, any motion for punishment of the citizenry was put forward for endorsement by the assembly. I believe that by the time our sources began to record the deeds and actions of the Spartan people, the importance of the Gerusia had begun to wane. The academic community places far more emphasis on the Amphorate and Assembly as the greater influences on the realm of politics from the 5th century onwards. If I was to compare it to Rome, which you all know by now how much I love to, a similar thing occurred with the Octoritus of the patrician class. At the foundation of the Roman Republic, they held all positions of power, but a general whittling away of inherited privilege left the title impotent and insipid by the time of Marius and Sulla. Once true executive power is handed over to the masses, it is only a matter of time before archaic ruling bodies become mere shadows of their former prestige. Although the Gerusia never fell out of fashion, in the 4th century it was nonetheless only a shell of its 8th and 7th century might. Now we turn to the assembly, made up of the homoioi, whom qualified automatically for voting rights within it at the age of 30. Sources vary wildly about the number of people who met the qualifications of full enfranchisement, but if we take first Plutarch and then Herodotus, we can formulate a working hypothesis for the purposes of this section. In the life of Lycurgus, we are told that the quasi-mythical lawgiver divided up Spartiat land into 9,000 separate parcels, or clairoi in Doric Greek. Rather than this partition taking place in the late 9th century, however, I prefer a date somewhere between 650 and 600 BCE for several reasons. First, the advent of hoplite warfare didn't occur until the first half of the 7th century, and this was shortly followed by the so-called Second Mycenaean War. If Sparta had militarised and formed the first professional fighting force before this date, she would not have likely been defeated by the Argives at Hysia, nor concerned by a general uprising of the Helots. Secondly, there is a lot of evidence for social upheaval from the mid-8th right through to the mid-7th century, typified by the Parthenia's foundation of Taris in 706 BCE. Clearly by that time, the city had not resolved the pressing concern of equal and fair distribution of the franchise. Lastly, even though there is a paucity in the sources, it's reasonably clear that from about 650 through to the aforementioned Kinothon conspiracy in the early 4th century, there is barely an inference of discord within the ruling Spartiat elite. Undoubtedly, there are episodes of rebellion on behalf of the Helots during this time, but that's a separate issue. By the beginning of the Persian Wars, circa 490 BCE, Herodotus says there are about 8,000 Spartiates. These numbers work, 
If you consider failing another land division, there could never be more than 9,000 citizens. And by the very nature of continual war coupled with land inheritance causing the slow accumulation of property in the hands of a few, a citizen population drop of around 1,000 sounds feasible from 650 to 490 BCE. This was the first lump of a cancer that would eventually cripple Sparta known as Oliganthropia. Something we'll be coming back to over and over again in the future. But for now, the lengthy discussion on citizen numbers isn't simply a pointless digression. Sparta's arch-rival, Athens, had a far larger population, but also more decentralised in its spread. The fickle Athenian democracy could perform lawmaking duties at a moment's notice, leaving a vast number of the citizenry without the time, or even the inclination, to travel to the city and participate. Thucydides records that during wartime the Nix Hill was lucky to have 5,000 people present to vote. Even more telling is Plutarch mentioning that only 6,000 votes were required to ostracise, a favourite pastime of the democracy. The Athenian male population sat around 30,000, meaning that at best proposals needed the consent of only 20% of those available to vote at any one time, a clear indication of expected turnout in Athens. The Spartans voted in the assembly by acclaim, so regardless of how many attended proceedings, a majority was reached. Rather than the 5,000 mustered by Athenian matters of state, I suggest, in the 7th and 6th centuries in particular, Spartan assemblies were likely to be better attended than their counterparts. Plutarch gives the number of 9,000 male citizens originally, and in those early times, the vast majority of they and their families were stationed and were living within the Peloponnese, all clustered around the polis itself for safety, with a hostile force in the countryside waiting for the chance to exact a measure of revenge. That made sense. In Greek, democracy is demokratia, and means rule of the people. I find it interesting, and likely that in Sparta, more people exercised more rule at any given time than did in Athens, a place lauded for its democracy. At any rate, this body was indeed sovereign during the act of lawmaking, but it wasn't by any means executive in its function. The two cities deviated wildly here. In Athens, any citizen could initiate proceedings both political and legal at will, performing as hovulomenos, or he who wishes in English. Spartan assemblies were far more restrained with no place for individuality of action, much like a Spartan phalanx. The retrostates that they were called forth by the Gerousia, and later also by the Ephorate to hear the judgments and proposals of those bodies. From there, the assembly had three options. To not hear the matter at hand and reject it summarily, to approve it directly, or to first amend, then approve. The notion they could do anything other than give assent is challenged by none other than Aristotle, who I in turn seem to be challenging a lot today, in his politics. He suggests that the citizen body could only, as he puts it, diakuse, or listen, to what those in high office had already decided. In his time, however, and in his defence, the Spartan state had hit a relative nadir, and oliganthropia left the citizen population vastly diminished. At the time of the retra, the assembly was given the power to make decisive action on proposals. Implicit in that would be the power to not do so as well. And if they weren't expected to amend proposals, the final line of the retra offering the council the opportunity to reject the assembly's verdict would hardly be necessary. The fact we have no record of the Gerousia ever rejecting a decision doesn't mean it never came to pass. I believe, though, it was a rare occurrence. Only the kings were absolved from the brutal agoge as part of their royal privilege. It wouldn't do for a descendant of Heracles to fail the brutal regime at any rate. But every other citizen of Sparta, as part of that citizenship's qualification, 
spent 23 out of their first 30 years getting indoctrinated into a world of obedience and deference. Therefore, you could forgive Aristotle for writing off the assembly as insipid, but despite natural partisanship for the Spartans, there was simply a traditional way of life and personal comportment that led itself to civil harmony. So, although not self-determining, the assembly was the central organ of politics within Sparta and central to the reform laid out by the Retra. By taking a look at our final facet of government, we'll see the citizenry in action a little better, as with the rise of EFA power, our records of their formal use of the assembly become a little clearer. The creation of the ephorate was the answer to a very particular problem, and the final piece of the puzzle to right the ship of state. As Aristotle says, the kings are kept happy by their privileges, the upper class by the possibility of entering the gerousia, and the demos by being eligible for the ephorate. It seems the retro didn't quite go far enough, and it's clear that within a generation or two, further reform was required and the board of ephors was created, perhaps between 650 and 600 BCE at the latest. Plutarch attributes the board's inception to King Theopompus, who as we've seen was a late 8th and early 7th century king. However, to refute that claim as one that's a little anachronistic, we have evidence from the poet Tertius. He wrote that it was Theopompus that helped win for the Spartans the lands of Messenia, and also clearly referenced the Great Retra, which in itself is telling by its failure to contain any mention of the Ephorate. Therefore, I prefer the later date I proposed. Of the people, by the people, and presumably for the people, they came to wield considerable power, though how much is hotly debated. Consisting of five annually elected members, possibly one from each village, or at least representing them, the term Epha itself translates as overseer, and some theories suggest that the position has ancient origins, and certainly lends itself to other pastoral terminologies found within Sparta, but I think it is more literal in its meaning, as oversight across all spectrums of Spartan society was their main function. They were the real executive power within Sparta, and unlike the assembly and the garusia that had to come together for their deliberative process, the ephorate was continuously active, ready at a moment's notice to protect Sparta's laws and practices. The function of this board was purely reactionary, however, responding to events as they transpired. Any far-reaching plans they might have had were nullified by the annual nature of the position. You can imagine that the board's plans changed as often as the election cycle, and even assuming the five in office had similar aims for the year, any long-term policies would have been impossible to implement. The aforementioned attempt of the Ephes and Gerusia to coerce King Anaxandridas into a new marriage is the first mention of them in operation, which occurred in the 540s. What they did before that time is pure speculation, but I think that initially they were introduced to further dilute the kingly power, giving the citizens, as Aristotle mentioned, something to aim towards to appease their naturally rested nature. Like the tribunate of the plebs in Rome, the body gradually accrued more and more power to itself over the centuries, until the time of Xenophon, where they are clearly the preponderant force in the constitutional machinations of Sparta. An example of their eventual importance and centrality to Spartan government comes from the end of the Peloponnesian War. The Athenians were eventually brought to their knees largely by the efforts of a Spartan named Lysander, who, after blockading the city and starving its people into submission, received their surrender. Rather than sending word to the kings, the Gerousia, or even the people themselves, Lysander chose the Ephes as the body worthy of such momentous correspondence. He wrote simply, Athens is taken to which the vulnerable body replied in typical laconic fashion. The word taken would have been enough. A pithy little anecdote for sure, but one that shows the board's prominence of place. 
Let's turn to the board's far-reaching powers through recorded examples of their activities, first in the sphere of warfare. Ultimately, the decision to go to war rested with the body of the citizen assembly, seemingly after a bill had been put forward for war by either the Gerasia or the Ephorin. But the business of calling up a levy seems to have rested solely with the ephors. Xenophon records between 400 and 360, no fewer than 15 times such an event took place. In all of those instances save one, the Ephorin called the army forth. In the other, it was King Agesileos who was recorded, but he was an astute and powerful statesman who, like Cleomenes a century before, no doubt had a firm control over the senior political councils and could force his stratagems through the correct channels. Often, though, there would be the need for alacrity during periods of imminent danger when the executive function of the board supported the immediate and extra-constitutional call-up of a force outside of assembly approval. Thucydides records that in 419 BCE, King Agis led out the full Spartan levy to the border of Laconia, saying that no one in Sparta had any idea where this force was headed. To me, this clearly indicates the bypassing of the assembly, and that the decision to send out an army was taken by the Ephorate alone, or possibly in conjunction with the Gerasia. The appointment of generals still resided with the people, as is seen by Xenophon's recording that the ephors called up the army, and the citizens decided who would lead it. There are also multiple instances of the ephors acting to control Spartan armies in the field. How this process worked in Sparta isn't entirely clear, nor how the messages were delivered, but it's obvious from the sources that they could influence the strategy of the war effort by issuing of general orders to the army. Xenophon records Spartan generals being directed from action in the north of Asia Minor to the Carian Theatre in the south during the first half of the 4th century. In relation to foreign envoys, these were, in the first instance, brought before the board of ephors. Such events were often regulated by strict traditions in the ancient world, and Sparta was no exception. The assembly would only be called up in matters that required their assent, but the ephorate could reject the embassy out of hand if it so desired. This occurred most famously in the year 405 and towards the end of the Peloponnesian War, when an Athenian embassy was sent packing due to its terms for peace being far too lenient for the Ephorate's likings. At the beginning of that war, or at least its first phase, we see in 432 an ephor by the name of Sthenalathis presiding over the crucial meeting of the assembly to decide for or against war. It's likely that the presidency of the assembly was yet another duty of the ephors, and likely too that they at the very least attended meetings of the Gerasia, and perhaps in their function of overseers, presided over them as well. Other duties that we have record of are of a more day-to-day nature within Sparta. Apparently, there was a monthly oath sworn between the kings and the ephorate. On the one hand, the ephors told the kings they would uphold their power, but on the other was a caveat that said they would only do so if the kings in turn would uphold the laws. They made a yearly declaration of war, against the Howlett population, effectively absolving any and all citizens from the pollution of murder should any slave require capital punishment or summary execution. This pronouncement, made at the commencement of the incoming ephors' terms, was followed by another instructing citizens to clip or trim their moustaches and be obedient to the laws. Now this last statement has often been mistranslated as shave your moustaches, but the original Greek is fairly clear. Mitrafin mystica, in English, do not overgrow your moustache. Issues around personal grooming aside, it is just a ritualistic way of reminding the citizenry of their requirement to obey. Lastly for the ephors, they were the de facto heads of Sparta's secret police called the Cryptaea. Comprised of young men who had just completed the agoge, 
they acted as an implement of terror against the already oppressed Hallett population. They were tasked with going out into the countryside with nothing but a cloak and a dagger, perhaps the first instance of cloak and dagger operations, and were expected to spy, terrorise, and in some cases murder the servile underclass. Another layer of oppression upon an already oppressed people, the Cryptaea no doubt helped formulate some of the very worst nightmares the Hallets had. It's believed that it was a form of officer training for young Spartiates, and indeed, there is plenty of evidence that while failure to participate didn't preclude citizens from high office, it certainly did make the climb a little tougher. Either way, they were the military wing of the Ephorate, directly under their control and ready at a moment's notice to do their master's bidding, in accordance with the law of course. To conclude this look at Spartan government, it should be noted that we are extremely limited by the style of our main sources. Neither Herodotus, Thucydides or Xenophon were strictly political commentators. The focus of their individual works had other ideals in mind. Couple that with the fact that the Spartans were extremely secretive regarding their internal affairs, even going so far as to ritually and regularly expel outsiders from the state. The preponderance of the ephorate in the assembly is clear from all accounts. That the Gerousia seems to be of less importance can be easily explained by the nature of Sparta post its political reforms. Whatever occurred in the dark mists of time to effectively level the playing field of the social elite and institute a coating of equality amongst the citizenry more broadly, it's true that this veneer covered up very real areas of inequality, but it was as good an imperfect solution as could be hoped for. Comparative to other oligarchies throughout Greece, the aristocracy in Sparta was overwhelming in size, though dwarfed by the number of helots and perioikoi. Having conquered Messenia, the state could afford to support, according to Plutarch, 9,000 oligarchs, a massive number by any measure for an ancient Greek polis. If it was truly to outwardly appear in harmony, final sovereignty had to rest with the assembly. It was a utopian ideal that could never last, but it held true for at least 200 years before the Peloponnesian War changed everything. Within a generation or two of its conclusion, the veneer rubbed through and Sparta changed into a place truly oligarchic in nature and practice. Yet, that is a story for another time. Up next, we are going to take a look at the methods employed for both men and women to raise them from the crib into the most feared warriors of ancient Greece and those that were alone in giving birth to real men, or so Queen Gorgo apocryphally said. From birth, both Spartan boys and girls were set apart, and for a case of political and social elites had an extreme challenge laid before them. Acceptance into the full franchise was not a birthright, it had to be earned, and we'll look at the various stages of the journey to full enfranchisement with episode 22, The Raising of Spartans. That will be dropping on Sunday, March the 14th. I hope to see you all then, and as always, dear listeners, take good care, and speak soon. This time around, there will be another article up on my website for members only. Not a member? No problems. Sign up for free at spartanhistorypodcast.com. This one is on the formation and function of the Athenian Council of the Areopagos, which I mentioned briefly in this episode. You can find me on Twitter at Spartan underscore history, and on Facebook too at Spartan History Podcast. If you like this episode and are keen to hear more, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you catch your pods from, and leave a review. See you next time.